If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. This episode is brought to you by Odogu.com, where you need to find high-quality leads from Facebook and Instagram. There's only one name to call and one man to trust. That's O-D-O-G-W-U.com, the growth marketing guy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is serial entrepreneur Robert Bob Glazer. Bob is the founder and managing director of Acceleration Partners. He's also the founder and chairman of Brand Cycle. Bob has an exceptional track record of helping companies grow their revenues and profits using performance-based affiliate marketing principles. In today's episode, we're talking about how entrepreneurs and businesses can implement performance-based marketing techniques to grow their businesses. Bob's work has been so revolutionary that his company has been featured many times on Inc.com as one of the fastest growing advertising and marketing companies in America. He's a highly sought after speaker for business and marketing conferences and a contributor to many large publications including success.com and entrepreneur.com. Bob is a recipient of numerous accolades including the Boston Business Journal 40 Under 40 Award, the Smart CEO Boston Future 50 Award, and a finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. When he's not working with clients or writing articles, Bob serves as an active member of several nonprofit organizations in the Boston area. Every Friday, he puts out an inspirational post for his friends, family, and employees on his website titled Friday Forward. I'm pleased to have him on the show today to talk to us about his business and his life. If you love today's episode, please feel free to go on iTunes and like the show and leave a review and a comment in iTunes. And without further ado, Bob, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Chief. Excited to be here. Yeah. So could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I think you covered, covered a lot of it. But, um, you know, I, I, uh, I've been working in the marketing and acquisition performance marketing space uh, for about uh, 15 years now. I've spent most of my career working with uh, growing uh, consumer businesses, which is what landed me in the acquisition space because I realized at some point it's really, it's not about having the best idea. It's about having a good product or service and making sure that you can get people to that product or service in a, in a cost-effective manner. In fact, the, 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 the reason why the majority of consumer businesses fail is, is, is not the product, it's the, it's the marketing or acquisition model. So, um, you know, I, I really got introduced to the uh, affiliate model about um, about 10, 12 years ago and really saw that as a great way sort of expanding on referral marketing principles and business development to, um, you know, grow your marketing and, and, and figure out how to nurture win-win performance-based relationships uh, with partners. All right. So you got into this industry about um, 10 years ago, you said. Now, let's talk a little bit. Before you went in to start your own business, you were working at a company for a couple of years, and then you moved to a startup. Could you tell us a bit about your experiences working first as a professional and then working in a startup, and then what led you to start your own business? Yeah, so so we're finally going the other direction, but, but my first four jobs were all for smaller and smaller companies. So uh, out of college, I worked for a, a, a larger strategy consulting firm. Um, then I went to work for um, uh, an incubator uh, and a smaller venture fund. Again, really liked the high-growth consumer side. Um, 
from there, uh, I actually went to a startup and helped grow a consumer business in the in the family and 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 baby space, uh, and then actually left there and started two businesses at the same time. Um, part of that was just you know deciding that you know I, I liked to grow businesses, I like working with high growth businesses, um, but I kind of wanted to be one of those businesses uh, myself, and I was I was kind of coming in and working with founders and coaching them, and I was. Just from investing and operating, I was seeing a lot of the same mistakes and things over and over, and thought that you know I could 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 do that in a in, in a better way. Um, so um, yeah, that's how I got started in the space. And you know, frankly, when I started Acceleration Partners, um, and I started another company at the same time that was was a publisher, I, I kind of thought at some point someone would uh, make me an offer I couldn't refuse, and I'd want to go work in the high growth space and. I love working with uh, these companies, but there's a lot of cultural implications and stuff that I've, especially in the venture back segment, I've come mm-hmm. to see over the years. And I, I really like being exposed to that kind of company, but I, I, I really prefer the type of company that we're building in terms of having that be where I get my my paycheck. What were some of the mistakes you were seeing that you felt were being made by companies? Yeah, I mean, they're just leveraging marketing channels that were too uh, expensive. And I had always been good at sort of, it was a combination of really business development and marketing, which has come full circle, about using other people's awareness and, um, you know, brokering deals with them. You know, one of the most common ones for retailers is like exchanging box drops, right? So mm-hmm. uh, let's say a company shipping diapers and another one is shipping um, you know, birth announcements. Well, they'd be great partners. How about we put a thousand flyers in yours and we put a thousand. I mean, that, that is the type of sort of, you know, performance or bartered or whatever relationship that is, that is scalable and doesn't mm-hmm. cost you a lot of money and, and, and there's a win-win in it. Um, so, you know, I had always been, that's the type of stuff I'd seen companies be successful and be scrappy. And, and I'd seen another set of companies just go try to buy their way to success. And it didn't, it didn't seem to work well for them. It just didn't seem sustainable. You just keep having to raise more money. And and the trick for a consumer business is to figure out a profitable customer acquisition model. And what I love about um, performance marketing and affiliate marketing is that it is that by nature. Because if you say, look, I, I know that a customer is worth $100 for me and I would pay $10 all day for uh, that customer, then you can set up partners and arrangements based on that model where mm-hmm. you're basically paying for the customer um, after, after you get it. Um, it may be helpful just for listeners um, to just give sort of a high-level def- definition of affiliate marketing yes. in case I haven't made that clear. Yeah, let's do um, Yeah, so, so at 10,000 feet, like affiliate marketing is really when a company and a marketing partner, often called an affiliate or publisher, enter into a commission-based relationship that is paid for performance. The, the, the term for that is CPA, cost per acquisition. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier to remember COD, uh, say cash on delivery. Um, so almost every online business over a million dollars has an affiliate program these days. And in many ways, it's a framework or a way to pay more than it is a channel itself. As affiliates represent almost every conceivable form of online marketing activity, they're you know from public companies to mommy bloggers to newspaper media, magazine websites. There's tons of different types of publishers and affiliates. So that is really what it is at a high level. I know, as you mentioned, mommy bloggers. I just my mind just moved to um, <laughs> people that have um, platforms on things like Instagram or Facebook pages, and um, I think. 
these are now called uh, influencer influencers yeah. exactly most of them are celebrities that i'm sure they get paid a ton of money just to post something and they don't really care about the product or the service so how does that help the end user if somebody is just being paid just to basically yeah, share the product as opposed to using a performance model it's a great question. So um, there are a couple of different ways to answer that. First of all, using a performance model makes someone less likely to shill a product because they don't get paid if it doesn't work. So you have your celebrity influencers who very sort of inauthentically, you know, for a half million dollars, will talk glowingly about this product on one day and glowingly about this product the other day, and they're starting to run afoul of the FTC. And there's some real question on whether that works. There's kind of a larger segment of, and that sort of falls under branding, but there's a larger segment of like micro-influencers. So if you're a pet company, you know, there may be a thousand of these, you know, pet influencers who have websites or followings and they're really real passionate about that area. And, and, and you can engage a bunch of them, roll them up into an affiliate program. Um, and, you know, each of them talking about something authentically um, combined has has a big impact, and and they're willing to do it on a performance basis because they believe in it. So um, I think that's you know the one thing that we've seen is that when someone does something on a performance basis, it, it it just it tends to have a little more authenticity because when your metric is just to post it, that the, there was a someone last year and it was sort of the tipping point for influencer marketing, but but. Um, I think it was someone in related to Kardashian family. I can't remember, but basically posted the instructions that the influencer marketing firm had given him to about how to do the post. And he put that in the post cause he didn't even read it. Um, so that, that, that is sort of the problem versus if I'm going to use my real estate and I'm going to talk about something like I, and, and, and I only get paid if people buy it, I'm, I probably could put a little more work into it and mm-hmm. I, and, and people tend to do better with the stuff that they really do like, um, and authentically believe in. I think we can skip back. And I think in your book, there was a quote by John Wanamaker that said, yeah, <laughs> advertising, you know, 50%, 50% of my marketing works, yeah, 50% works. doesn't. And you don't, you don't I don't know, know which, which half. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically this is a way of actually trying to figure out which half is working correct and which half is going to produce revenue for the merchant or the product seller. Yeah. You always know it's working because you don't pay for what doesn't work. Mm. So what's kind of sad is that John said that quote well over a hundred years ago in a time when, you know, marketing was all brand and there was no direct marketing and there was no data and no analytics. We have all this stuff now, but due to a variety of reasons, I'm not sure that most companies are better than the, than the 50, 50 rule. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of the problem is attribution. They have, you know, four or five channels, um, all maybe leading to one buyer, and uh, and aren't sure how to properly attribute which of those uh, mattered or not. Was it Burnett that had a problem with uh, or lost the McDonald account last year because of um, the change in performance-based marketing on McDonald's side? Yeah. So so uh, yeah, they said. Um, it's interesting. McDonald's said, "Look, we're we're tired of a lot of this. You know, there's been a lot, a lot of fraud in in display marketing, and agencies mm. have sold a lot of this stuff, and it's been deemed to be thirty or forty percent fraud, which could be twenty to thirty billion dollars by whichever estimates you're looking at. Just not not even seen by people. Not that it doesn't work, but seen by robots and not by people. Um, so." 
you know, McDonald's said, look, we, 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 we want to do things on performance. And they went out and said, you know, we're going to pay sort of enough money to keep the lights running, but, but we're going to pay for things that actually work. And, um, you know, those other agencies said, Hey, we're out. And, and, and new agencies stood and took that. And I think, I think you're going to see more of that where people are saying, look, we're, we're going to pay for outcomes. We're not going to pay for inputs. We have, we have the technology to do it. We have the tracking to do it. If you're so great at X, you know, rather than pay you as a service, why don't you put a little bit of, of skin in the game? So um, it's a big, big change going on right now. I think again, to pay pay for outcomes, not pay for for inputs. Yeah, but there's a risk there that is if the affiliate generates a lead towards the merchant, and the yeah. mer- merchant can't close the sale, then isn't that too much of a risk on the affiliate side? It is, and they have to look at that data. And it's interesting, you know, a company uh, that uh, I mentioned in the book called Red Ventures, which is is fairly large, but but most people don't know them. You know, they they actually do the whole thing. So they go to company and say, "Look, we've we've got a better conversion group. We've got better call center. We've got some pretty incredible technology to figure to know when to match someone up with a with a, with an agent." And so you just give us your number and we'll, we'll do all of that stuff. So they're almost like a, a, a super publisher in a sense. Like, so if you tell us a lead is worth a hundred dollars, we will run that part of the website for you, answer the phone, do all of that stuff with our own money. And we believe that we have more data and more acumen to do that better than you. And, and they're growing incredibly quickly. So I, this is, it's interesting, you know, it's, it, it's kind of the model where you say, look, if you're, if you're a great toy company and you're just your specialty is toys you might you might not have to be good at marketing right you can go to a great marketing company and figure out the deal that makes sense that that both of you do well but that would mean you'll probably have to say okay let's work with a a facebook guy and let him run facebook ads we'll work with the instagram guy let him do instagram ads we'll work with snapchat guy and then they can actually see what channel is actually bringing in the most revenue what is not and then right. it's hard to keep the target. team up with that. I mean, I, I talked in the book about um, in performance partnerships about sort of marketplaces of marketing, and that's the concept, like kind of logo tournament, and but at a larger scale of hey, open up your marketing to some of these entrepreneurs, and as soon as you figure out you know Facebook, then there's Snapchat, and as soon as you figure that out, then there's something else, and try rather than trying to keep up with that on a team, you can. You know, it's effectively hiring the the expert Expertise, on that. Yeah. yeah, letting them. You know, they have to agree to your rules and and your brand standards and your terms and conditions. But let them go do what they do well. Um, if it's not a core competency for you, well, that's that might raise another problem. If they have to play by the company's rules, then doesn't that sometimes tie their hands to certain things they can do and not do? Yeah, it does. It does tie their hands. And I think, um, but it's no different than a licensing, you know, agreement or, you know, I, I was on, a, I was on yeah, a franchise agreement. I mean, there, there are brand standards that need to be, you know, maintained. Um, and I think actually affiliates gotten a freer pass than other forms of sort of brand licensing. Have. In fact, um, I was on a panel uh, in London last year with the head of global head of Adidas's affiliate program. And he said, look, if you want to become a reseller with Adidas, it's like a hundred page contract and it's all these terms and you have to read them and there's no two strikes. And he's like, you know, our affiliate agreement is like five pages. I mean, comparatively it's, it's not that bad. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're basically becoming a, a reseller for Adidas, you know, you need to play by Adidas's rules. And I, I think that's an expectation for any, any good brand. The show is primarily listened to by 
hustlers, side hustlers, entrepreneurs, and startups. <laughs> Give us some actionable steps, Bob. How can someone start making money on affiliate marketing? Because the main thing everybody knows about affiliate marketing, maybe they've heard of it on the Amazon Associates or yeah. other sites where you just throw up a website, you put up some content, and then you yeah. drive people. Or you have a podcast like this and you channel people to products that you love. Yeah, and then you, and you link, to, link to their book links. Yeah, so, so but, yeah. Uh, but for you, from your ex. From your perspective, since you're the expert, give us some of the best ways people are monetizing um, this field of marketing. Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I am not the get rich quick uh, affiliate person. So I will I will answer so instead of making money on affiliate marketing. Let's say making money with, with so, so two things, right? If I'm if I'm starting a business and I believe I have a great product. Um, I could sign up for a program on a network. I'd probably want to choose a smaller, low-cost, independent network, and from day one, kind of approach business development that way. Um, as I said before, you know, find people that have complementary um, audiences to me. Uh, I might go to them and say, "Hey, look, I, I, I've got this new company. I'm doing X. I, I see you have Y. I've got this program you can join. I'd love to pay you twenty percent per sale. Do you think you could promote my?" Uh, company's product or service, and and rather than starting and dumping money in Facebook and stuff, go around and build up performance partnerships, um, and 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 use a platform to track because it's a lot easier to get the tracking and the payout, and not have to deal with all that. Um, and 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 look to leverage that business development again. You know that these things are profitable. You don't you want to offer enough to be enticing to them, but you don't pay uh, if they don't work. Um, the flip side of that is if you wanted to be a publisher, um, and and unless you're a marketing genius and you know how to spin up a page and rank for SEO and buy, and you want to play kind of the arbitrage game, the most successful publishers just write or create a site or create a following about what they know about the most and love, right? So let's say it's watches, and you you have a watch blog and a following, and you talk about you know rare pieces and all that stuff. So so then you'd want to go around and. And, and, and say which companies out there you know would have stuff would have products that would appeal to um, you know a watch loving audience or a yeah. collector's audience and probably like the eBay program or something like that and and join up with them and maybe try to get a, a get a better commission so um, that's that's really how it works both sides right I, either you have a product and you want to find that people have the audience and partner with them or you're building up the audience and you say look I don't I don't want to um, have to build product. I'll, I'll work with other companies. So the the example I I think I gave in the book is, um, let's say you had this massive audience around um, babies, uh, and you had a mom blog, and you had hundred. I mean, so so years ago, you'd have to sort of build a brand. You'd say, look, I, I need to come out with my own line of strollers, or I need to come out with a book. Well, today you could talk. You could have a category on best strollers, and you could connect to companies and get the best deals. You could feature the books on parenting that you want to feature. And, and and you can maybe make 10% commission on these things, which is not that much different than probably the net margin of the retailer that's selling it, particularly yeah. with how retail is going these days, except mm-hmm. you don't have to take any – it's an inventory list business. So um, what we see with businesses that – you know, are able to monetize on affiliate is that they usually the you know the revenue and margin are almost the same thing. So, um, but but there's no get rich quick. I mean, the only way to get rich quick overnight is if you know if you know that like you know mattress reviews pay a ton of money. You know how to spin up a page on mattress reviews, get it ranked, get traffic, 
for 50 cents and monetize it for a dollar, you know, then you might do that. If not, you really need to focus on something you know and love and think you can become the expert in. Mm -hmm. And if you become the expert in it, then you're definitely going to have opportunity to partner with companies that will pay you for your, to send the customers to their products or services. And what about companies like, um, coupon sites and deal sites? Could those, um, possibly be performance partners or yeah, where do they fall almost, on the almost every coupon site is an affiliate um, okay. and joins affiliate programs. So um, it's up to the brand to determine how they want to work with them. You know, is it a full price brand? Because, you know, then maybe coupons don't make sense, but if it's a brand that discounts a lot, then certainly, or it's a commodity item, then coupons become really important because let's say it's a black and Decker toaster and it's the model a hundred and it's on sale at target, Walmart, you know, all, all of these guys and there's no different. Well, whoever has a coupon that week, maybe the, the retailer that you end up buying it from. So, um, yeah, there's, there, there's coupons can be really helpful. You also need to be careful that you're not paying for coupons, people to coupons who are already maybe in your shopping cart and paying a lot of money for that. So, uh, it's definitely something to, to, to manage, uh, carefully, but can be, can be valuable for sure. So let, let's shift gears a little bit. So you're the entrepreneur, you're running this business, you have a distributor team working yeah. for you. How did you go about setting up the way your your business is set up where you have teammates all over the country, all over the world working on projects for big companies? Yeah, no, so, so we're not a creative agency, right? I think that is where most of the, hey, come to our office and see our whiteboards and all of our stuff. Yeah. So we're... We're, we're a performance agency. So people are happy when we deliver performance. Um, and we deal in an industry where the, where the talent is, is sparse and hard to find. So we, over the years, have you know, grabbed people as they become available, people that we worked with. Um, our, our, our clients are all over the country and now increasing all over the world. So we, we have a high-touch model, but we, we go to our clients, right? I, 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 this, is, this is not, you know, the e-com division of these companies are different, I think, than you'd perceive of the whole massive creative team that wants to go over and meet with 100 people from the creative agencies. Like, we, we go to our clients. So we, the, the account teams go to them, and that's when they meet with them. They don't, they don't want to fly with us. But um, it's harder in the U.S. You know, it's very distributed. And, and for me to try to build and get all the talent in one place uh, is hard. It would, it would put me not in the same place as most of my clients. Mm. And, um, it also might not put me in the same place as, as a lot of the talent. So we've, we've chosen to work around hubs, um, and, um, you know, pick target cities, uh, build up teams in those cities, uh, leverage flex office space and stuff for meetings and, but ha have a social base for them to get together. But we are constantly on video communication. Everyone works in teams. They, they, they travel to our clients, which, which a lot of people don't do. So I think we're in more touch with our clients. Mm -hmm. And then we bring the entire company together for sort of a learning-style retreat uh, once a year for three to four days. And that really, that really goes a long way. So, um, but it's really honestly more of a necessity in our business. It is, it is a very specified skill set. Uh, and, um, again, I, I could pick somewhere um, to build a, a huge office uh, but, but, but the clients probably wouldn't come and a lot of the talent probably would not be near there. Talent around the world are just moving and transitioning over into the gig economy, you know, with yeah. more independent free agents. Even big companies like PwC and Deloitte have been trying to leverage uh, independent contractors for yeah. 
for certain jobs. How do you build that um, team environment and that cohesiveness and that structure that um, makes it easy for people, even though they are across the country or across the globe, to work together? Because sometimes when you're in the office, you get that extra X factor that makes it easier to get the job done. Whereas if you're distributed, it becomes a little bit harder. I get asked this a lot. And um, there's two things. One, it comes back to the type of business we're in. Again, we are we are sort of performance driven and that's what matters. So, you know, I, our clients can see how well each of our programs performed on the, on the end of each month. And, and, um, you know, that that's what they see. First, I'll say that we, everyone is a full-time employee. Um, we, you know, we have, we know people in the industry that sort of leverage and farm out work to contractors that, that is not our model. So we have full-time employees, benefit employees. We have one culture. We have a very strong culture. If you go look at, uh, feedback and stuff on us. So, um, and, and, and part of that is finding people with like minded DNA. So a lot of people always ask about distributed in a bunch of different places and, and they're making the assumption that we could take anyone and then they would work well in that environment. We've figured out over the years, it's probably one of every hundred people we talk to of who would work well in our environment. So, um, you know, we give them the upside of being part of a great culture and a team and being an employee, but we give them the flexibility. And these are folks who are very uh, goal-driven. They are not uh, raging extroverts who get all of their energy from being around other people. Hmm. They le- What they enjoy the most is getting things done. They tend to have families and young children, and they, uh, you know, want that flexibility of, you know, at six o'clock, there's a lot of people at baseball and soccer games, uh, you know, here and, and look, they're back on at eight o'clock. I mean, it, it, you know, people work really hard with that flexibility. So what, what we've done is we've defined the culture and we've attracted the type of people who, who, who like that. I mean, I, my best part of my day is not in meetings all day. Uh, it's when I sit down for three or four hours, look at that to-do list and get, and get through it. So we have a lot of people who are love working with the team. They are self-directed though. They like accomplishing, they are goal oriented. Um, and, and, and that works really well. So in fact, sometimes when we're all getting together as a team, people will say, I can't come to the team day because I have too much work to do, which I think is funny. They, they find they're inherently like distracted by working with other people. Um, it does make training a little harder, um, particularly around a lot of those water cooler conversations, mm-hmm. but also like we learn to block off our time and schedule time for talking and schedule time for working. I mean, there's a lot of data on how disruptive an office is. And particularly I've seen some data recently on like whether open offices like are really a productivity drain because everyone is, is, is coming up and bothering you. And you know, there's this notion of REM work where you get into a zone and you get most of your work done and you know, if people think they can just come interrupt you all day, um, and then that has a downside. So there are definitely trade-offs. I think there's certain things that are harder to learn by osmosis. I think for training, um, we try to pair people up and get them in person. Again, you can't, you can't, you don't just hear as much by, by listening. Um, and certainly for meetings, but almost all of our meetings are video. Um, they have to have tight agendas. They have to have times. Sometimes it's just too easy to call meetings. I mean, I, I remember working with clients and I went to their offices and all they did was meet all day long. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we think we've built something that, that, that's unique. Um, and, but it definitely attracts a certain type of person and we know pretty quickly when it's not right for someone and, and we usually work with them to transition them out because, um, it, it, it works for the right person. It doesn't work for the wrong person. Yeah. And I think that's something that's so powerful that, people may not catch is that it works for the right person and does not work that you have 
narrowed it down to the exact type of personality that will fit in your company and fit in your culture. It's quite important to um, know your staff and know their strengths and their weaknesses is what I'm getting from that. Yeah, everyone, I, I think there's this, um, my, everyone's an A player in the right situation. Yeah. Um, so we, 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 I don't think this, this notion of an A, we look for A players, but it's not an absolute, you know, it's not, you put me in the wrong situation and I will be a, a B or a C player. So we, we have a notion we like to say right person, right seat, right time. And that's a constant reevaluation of, of, of talent. And, and what, what we needed two years ago may not be what we need right now. And, um, I think, you know, someone once told me the longest day in an entrepreneur's life is, or the longest time in an entrepreneur's life is, is the time between when you know what you need to do and when you do it. Um, and I think so many times we, we are like, well, you know, I'm probably gonna need to address this situation. We wait a year and you just, it just doesn't get better. So, um, again, culturally, we've tried to really come up with a new system around that. We have a very open discussion around happiness, uh, right place, you know, every quarter sort of checking in and, and, at any point that changes from either side, um, you know, we, we sit down and look at the options and, um, and, and, and figure out like a great transition. I mean, I've gotten, I've helped a lot of my employees find jobs elsewhere. Um, and, and they were great people, but situation change, the job change, what they wanted to do change. And it's a small world. My friend, yeah. uh, Lee just wrote a book called the boomerang principle about really creating an organization where people can come back and go out in the world and become advocates for you. And, I think there's always a, a, a good, uh, there's always a better way to have a, a, a good ending than sort of, you know, a two week notice surprise um, or a surprise termination. As an entrepreneur and a visionary and a thinker, you know, featured on Inc. 5,000 three, four times, which, which is no easy feat. I'm sure you, like every other entrepreneur, have a million and one ideas racing through your mind every day, but you only <laughs> have so many hours in the day and so much time to implement. So how do you pick and choose between the different ideas you have and what to work on and what to focus on and what gets you results and helps your company perform? It's a great question. Um, and, uh, I have something on my, uh, Friday forward site, which is FridayFWD.com um, called the whole life dashboard. And it, it's basically an integrate. I, I started using an alignment system personally, like you would use one of these alignment systems in your company. Sort of what what are my long term goals? What are my core values? What are my year goals? And 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 that breaks down to sort of quarterly and daily. And so I, I've tried to limit all of my ideas. And I, I think yeah, you, I mean, you sort of say entrepreneurs are their own worst nightmare. I mean, they're. Uh, anytime I see someone starting three new companies, I, I usually I'll come back a year later and, you know, their current companies in trouble and those three new businesses are, 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 you know, no longer exist because they just spread their energy too thin. So I, I try to really force my vision and innovation into things that are within that funnel that, that fall with where I said I wanted to be in five or 10 years that fall in my core values. That is sort of my litmus test around everything of whether I say uh, yes or no to it. And does it, if I was successful at this, does it, does it help me uh, meet my goals? Uh, and I think that's how you force all of that sort of brilliant creativity that certain entrepreneurs and visionaries have in, in, into making sure you're productive or not. So again, if it's the, if it's our quarter and we're trying to hit this quarterly objective that we said, it's like, okay, well, how can I be, how can I be, 
innovative and visionary around getting us to that goal rather than distracting us from that goal. So how do you handle failure, rejection, and disappointment? I think you say why um, or, 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 or you keep going until it's clear that, hey, if I hear from you again, uh, there's going to be a restraining order. Um, so I, th- I think persistence, look, there's some soft no's and then there's hard no's. So um, there's a, hey, we don't think we should proceed with this or this is not a good time. Well, that leaves the door open for why do you think that? And maybe we weren't clear about how we could help you or what work it makes for you. I think if we said, hey, no, and we signed with a competitor, well, then I need to take a good look at try to get, I, I try to get as much honest feedback as I can from people. I, 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 will, I will take, and we've tried to institutionally, I'll take any feedback that people want to give me. And some people are uncomfortable with that. Like, why didn't you pick us? Tell me honestly. I mean, you didn't pick us. I might as well learn from this. Hmm. So, um, you know, we, we do a lot of debriefs and we take that and, and we just try to not repeat our mistakes. Um, there's been a lot of learnings that, that, that we've had around that. And I, I always say, like, I'm fine making mistakes. If you ever want to get me frustrated, it'll be the, you know, and there's a situation recently on this where um, we say it made the same mistake twice. And that, that, that's one of the few times that I get angry. Mm. Wow. So we, we I, I just saw one today, but we, we have everyone um, around. We have a whole set of circumstances in which everyone needs to fill out a debrief form on. And it's not about blame or whatever. The whole point of that debrief form is, you know, what happened and what would you do to prevent this? What could we have seen better for next time? And what in our processes or systems do we need to change to um, catch that next time? And, um, you know, we had, uh, we had, uh, one I just read right before I got on this call where, um, a client that decided to, to, to move on. And one of the analysis was they had continued to say that they, 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 they took the program that we were helping them with and they wanted to manage it in house, but they had for months been sort of cherry picking relationships and wanted to keep, keep picking the big ones and wanted to do it themselves. And the person writing it said, look, I think, you know, in the future, if we see someone doing that, we should just sit down with them because it's clear that they want to do it themselves. And, you know, it's better to have a discussion around that than have them slowly start picking off all the relationships that, that are, are valuable and, and work with those directly. So I actually thought that was a very thoughtful analysis. And I think it will run into that situation in the future. And then we've, we've learned something from it. I see here you're a contributor to entrepreneur.com and um, success.com. So one of the articles I read uh, prior to coming to this interview was um, how you would um, deal with um, employees that were not basically pulling their weight. And I know you've alluded to this earlier, but are there situations, especially in something like affiliate marketing, for example, where if you have an affiliate that is not necessarily performing, let's use that word performing, are there yeah. ways to figure out since you're the one helping the merchant to connect with this affiliate, are there ways to either help them improve their performance or do you just basically transition them off the relationship and look for better fit or better people that can serve the client's goals? No, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And I think, um, there's actually a lot of analogies. Most of these situations require more communication. Mm. And I think what I talk about in the book and part of the problem is a lot of people's affiliate programs have been set it and forget it. Or they say, look, this affiliate, this is kind of like if you have an affiliate who's not doing what you want, like you have an employee that's not doing what you want, you don't tell them that. 
how do you give them a chance to to improve that? So I think really good affiliate program management is about engagement. And one of the examples I gave on a panel this week was there are a lot of people who say, look, you know, if partner X, we're not super thrilled about your the you know your your order quality in general, and so we're going to lower your commission. And um, rather than looking at it and saying, you know, what we looked at is we saw some good activities and some bad activities, and on average, they would warrant a lower commission. But, like, is there something we could do to get more of these good activities? Because we like those. And if you could actually shift your uh, traffic to be more of this, I could pay you the same or more. I think the easy answer from everyone is just to, oh, let's cut it. Uh, we're trying to get everyone to be smarter about engaging and having a discussion. It is It is really no different than a an employment uh, discussion. Um, again, you shouldn't terminate the time you terminate someone or make the decision to leave. Shouldn't be the first time they hear about it. Mm. Similar with a publisher, the time to change their commission or kick them out of the program really shouldn't be the first, unless they're you know cheating. Uh, that really shouldn't be the first time that they hear that you're not happy about their performance. So as we start to conclude and wind down, you know, I really enjoyed your articles. I, let me let me ask one more question. On you did, you did a lot. You did a lot of homework because <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy these podcasts and these talks. I try to like read up and listen and learn about everything about the person before I come on the show. So no, um, I, 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 you do a good job. Thank you. So now I'm looking at the one where, and I think this is one of my favorites that I'm pinning to my wall. It says, you said, um, overnight success is a myth. Here are four ways to persist. Yes, that is one thing that's really common in this entrepreneurial world. And that people yep. just wake up and they see, oh, this guy just blew and he has a valuation of like $11 billion. Not knowing that there were many late nights and many tears along the way. Like even you yourself, now you've been featured on Inc. a couple of times. People might just assume that, oh, Bob just came out of nowhere and it's successful, they don't understand what it took to get you to, to where you are. So could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the more I've read stories and talked to people, I, I have a saying, which is I think entrepreneurialism is successful, uh, uh, is, is, sorry, entrepreneurialism is sexy in the rearview mirror. Um, I think when, you know, you talk, you see a lot of situations where you see the, the eventual outcome or the positive um, situation and, and, um, and you don't know what into that. Um, you know, a lot of my entrepreneurial friends get really frustrated, uh, when, um, you know, people are asking for, uh, equity or large portions or, uh, something like that, because they say, look, you know, they, they, they would like the upside without any of the risk. They don't remember when I worked for no salary and lived in my mom's basement and gave up my job. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they, they just, they just think it's part of the upside. And, and I know a lot of entrepreneurs believe, look, you shouldn't, there shouldn't be upside without real risk. But I, I, I think there's a cognitive dissonance element of it. I think it's easier for, for us to say, Oh, well, look at this guy, he's lucky, or this woman, or she's lucky, or blah, 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 rather than to ascribe that it's a lot of hard work. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that is behind it, and it's behind some of the alternative versions that are told. Um, I think it was in that article, or one of them I've written uh, about this in a lot of different ways, but um, I went to see the, the, the speakers, uh, the founder of Waze, which was bought by Google for several billion dollars. And the backstory that I had remember hearing when I went to see him was, oh, Waze started and six months later, it was acquired for a billion or two dollars. And, you know, it was lucky, 
Bucky bleeps. And uh, so, so I went and, and, and the founder told his story and it was not anything remotely close to that. It was, you know, a deep passion for solving logistical and transportation problems, 10 to 15 years of work, running out of money three times, so badly one time that they gave, you know, the majority of the company to investors. And so actually, as a proportion of that billions of dollars that were made, they made not a lot and went to the investors. And it was just interesting how the true story was was really different than what the the market uh, place had sort of propagated. And I just have to believe that some of that is that it makes people feel better uh, mm-hmm. to believe that there is this overnight success and, um, you know, the, 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 it gives them a little bit of jealousy on it. You would be, you know, they wouldn't, but again, they're looking at the outcome. They're not looking that, at everything that went, went into it. And they particularly don't see the sacrifices that were made, the financial sacrifices, the family sacrifices, the health sacrifices. Like it's not, it's not, it's, it's rarely is it a, a good lifestyle decision to become an entrepreneur. I think the most successful entrepreneurs, became that way because they were just unemployable um, yeah. and not and, and in a good way. They just, they had a passion around something. They wanted to do it. They were committed to do it. You know, it, the, the guys who probably have made the most money weren't looking to make money. You know, the ones who were looking to make money sold out early yeah. guys like Mark Zuckerberg and Gates and who still own all their company. I, I, it's not about the money. It's about sort of fulfilling their vision. And I was speaking with the farmer where I live on, the guy was telling me that um, to grow like a bamboo tree, it takes almost seven years when you plant a bamboo yeah. before it actually comes out of the soil. And when it comes out, you just see this massive shoot, shoot up. But for five to six to seven years, you might not even see anything come out. So that's, that's, that's what the entrepreneurial journey is like. It's like you put in all this work, all, all this work, uh, all the blood, sweat, tears, frustrations, getting bankrupt. You know, people don't see that, but when you're yeah. on um, CNBC, you're on Fox, you're on Entrepreneur, all those things, they're like, oh, this is this lucky SOB, you know? <laughs> yeah, and that's why you really have to believe. I think if you're trying to make money or trying, I, just like if you're trying to start an affiliate site to make money, you know, versus you're doing something that you love and then you end up making money on it, I, I, I just, you, you have to. It, it gets so hard that you have to really believe. Yeah. I would tell you, if, if you don't believe in your vision anymore, then then you should move on. But but mm. you know, the, if you've heard all these stories of people, it's almost like you know, so no one told you you were crazy or to give up or it made no sense. Then it probably wasn't going to be a new idea. So um, I've heard that sort of replay itself, sort of over over and over. Mm. Nice. All right. So as we start to transition and it's almost the top of the hour, I just have a few wrapping up questions for you before we sure. let you go. So who's an entrepreneur you admire and why do you admire that person so much? Yeah. So one of, one of my favorite uh, uh, mentors or not a mentor, I guess, I from, from, from afar is uh, Herb Kelleher, who was the uh, founder of Southwest Airlines. Um, and, you know, I, I, I actually, I don't love flying South. I fly a lot. I don't, <laughs> I don't love the sort of lining up and all stuff. Actually, all the stuff that they do that makes their business actually so profitable. But so, Southwest is an airline, you know, had their own near-death experience, which I've, which I've written about and, and talked about. But they just, you know, they just refuse to quit. 
and and they went into an industry and I, I like the contrarian story and they did it the opposite of everyone else. And, um, in, in, in over a period, I think of 20 years and in the late eighties to two thousands, you know, they made more money than the entire, uh, U S airline industry, mm. um, in, in, in what was a terrible industry to be operating in airlines. And then, being the low cost provider, which is never uh, an easy market position. And, and when they've asked them, so how did you do this? You know, the answer, the answer was culture. Uh, and, and they have a phenomenal culture and I think it just proves, you know, you're seeing some of the stuff in the airlines today, um, how, how big of a differentiator culture is and how, you know, you can get people excited and motivated around running all kinds of different, different business models. But I, I think what they accomplished in that industry is, is, it's pretty remarkable because again, this wasn't like coming into social media at the dawn of it or coming into the, uh, you know, uh, coming into, uh, personal computing at the dawn of it. I mean, this is, this was going into an industry that existed and really hasn't changed in terms of what it does and just being better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Nice. And so what's the worst job you've ever had and what did you learn from that experience? Um, (laughs) the worst job that I ever had, uh, I don't know, it was probably like making pizza or something, uh, in in high school in terms of, you know, it really, really wasn't fun or, or, or being an intern and, and, and getting coffee, uh, at a law firm. Uh, but, uh, actually the most difficult job I had was, uh, the last one before I, um, I uh, ended up starting my own business in that I, I think the culture of the business was, was not, the vision wasn't defined. There wasn't a culture. Um, people really liked the industry and they wanted to be there, but it just, no one felt rewarded for their work. Uh, the managerial style was more demotivating than motivating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's just actually, you know, that, that has formed the basis for, a lot of my leadership principles to not, not make others feel as, as I did, uh, in that situation. So, um, I, I get every, every failure or whatever, again, it's all, it's all part of our fabric of the eventual story. And I can tell you, there are some policies and things and stuff that I do that are directly the opposite of, of that. And it was probably in, informative of that time period. But, um, that's probably, that was probably definitely my professional, uh, low light other than again, you know, when you're 16 years old and whatever anyone will pay you to do, that's not that, not that fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think during my research on you, I, I remember reading somewhere that I think you quit that job and, um, your wife was pregnant at the time and you just had your back to the world and you just had to make something happen. And that's how acceleration yeah, no, and, 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 and actually it was, that was for me when I decided, you know, it was the mental shift at some point between mm-hmm. for me was that the risk of, you know, I, my parents were very much, I get a good, go to college, get a good job, you know, stay, very, very, you know, that was their parents told them. And so I think we all, we grew up to be, Oh, you get a good job. And, and at some point though, and this is when, you know, you're an entrepreneur, it, it shifted for me in mm-hmm. that, uh, betting on myself was much less risky than putting my career in other people's hands. Mm, I love that. I love that. And the second to the last question. Um, so what are some of your favorite material that you consume that help you, you know, books, tapes, messages, website, blogs, what what, is, what are the things that inspire you that you could share with the audience? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm inspired 
by I started this weekly uh, newsletter. It's called Friday Ford. It was on the blog I mentioned before, and it's mm-hmm. actually become a big part of what I do. That sort of becomes the I, I just like inspiring stories, insightful thought. That become I collect all of them. People send them to me. And then I turn them into these Friday forwards and share them with people. So that sort of becomes my uh, funnel of taking these things as I find them across social media or get sent to or otherwise. Um, but I, th- these days I'm listening to a lot more podcasts as I, as I run and I exercise. Um, I, I, I tend to <clears throat> read books that, you know, two or three people told me to read that I know we have the same sort of thing. But, um, I actually found podcasts to be really helpful. Uh, I've been listening to Tim Ferriss's podcast a lot. Malcolm Gladwell has some just, I, I like storytelling weaved into my, into my history. I think it mm-hmm. makes it a lot more interesting. In fact, that was sort of the style I took with my book was, you know, cause marketing books can be really hard to read. I tried to kind of weave a, a, a historical story into it. Um, and, and I think those sort of examples, um, make, you know, it's a lot more instructive in terms of learning and making it easier to digest. Yeah. And I've been um, reading your Friday Forge for some time. I think today's one is uh, the Peloton Principle. And, yes. um I like the quote at the end, which was like, decide how badly you want it and then proceed. <laughs> and then go get it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's uh, right. yeah, it's right. And, and the person who said that actually has an incredible uh, sort of near-death life experience story. Um, and uh, Peloton uh, has been an amazing company growth story, and and just the concept of a the concept of a Peloton itself is actually interesting in terms of what it what it means and how that company has sort of grown using that principle. I thought it was all very it all interestingly uh, came together. Mm, nice nice and so finally if looking back on your career um if you were to start all over again what would you do differently and then what would you advise um recent grads or people thinking of changing careers to think about or to watch out for as they're starting their journey if i had to do anything differently i would have I would have acted on my own uh, intuitions, I think, earlier. I think I would have betted on myself more earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I always had very strong ideas, clear vision where things were going to go. I, I just wasn't willing to take the risk to do that. But as I mentioned before, once I did that, it, it didn't feel risky. Like It felt more risky to sort of uh, be at the whim of someone else. Um, the number one advice, uh, the number one advice, the, the best advice I think I can give anyone who is, is coming up or I, I always used to say, uh, learn in your 20s, earn in your 30s. Uh, it's similar to that. I, I think you should not focus on, uh, if you're lucky enough to know what you want to do or have a sense of that, you should not focus on, on making money at all You know, in, in, in your early 20s. Uh, or taking a job for a thousand dollars over over another job is just it, get yourself in the best possible position to learn with the best possible mentors and leaders, and that will make such a difference in your trajectory and your income in a later stage. You'll just you'll be always underpaid in your twenties, no matter how good you are. Mm-hmm. But once you turn thirty, uh, and you know it's a real difference if you have ten years of experience in a deep network in the industry. Or you've had 10 different, there's a great quote, you either, some people have 10 years of experiences and some people have 10 one-year experiences. 
Um, and, and there's a big difference in your opportunities and how people value you. So I, if you can, if you can force your way into an internship, if you walk in and say, look, I'll do, and this is culturally not something I think people do enough anymore. I'll, I'll do whatever you want. I just want to work for you. I want to learn from you. You know, that becomes a resume builder that builds connections. And when you work in a great company or with great people, they tend to branch out and then become a really good network, you know, going, going and get paid a little more money to work at a terrible company with bad leadership, with not good coworkers. It's just a short, short term strategy. Where can people reach you and learn about you and this new book that you've written? Sure. So they can visit uh, performance-partnerships.com or if that's uh, uh, too long a URL, I can just Google performance partnerships or the book and you'll find it. Um, and you'll see you can download the first chapter, uh, buy it there. Um, we also have a really cool tool called Affiliate Grader. If you have a program uh, and you want to score it really quickly and answer some questions, um, you can also find me on our Acceleration Partners website uh, or my personal site, which is robertsglazer.com. And I try to respond to any outreach uh, that is personal and is not a sales pitch. So uh, find me, ask me a question. I'd be happy to get back to you. And are you active on social media, Facebook or Twitter, for example? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on I'm on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and uh, LinkedIn. Oh. Still, still no Instagram because I'd be running into my daughter and she'd be she'd be too embarrassed. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. So the new book is called Performance Partnerships. It's out on Amazon right now. Please um, log on to Amazon and get that. You know, you can reach Bob. You can also go on Friday fwd.com get his, uh, sign up for his newsletter it's really good go on the website check it out accelerationpartners.com you'll see all the cool stuff they're doing and they're also hiring too so if you have experience in the affiliate world you can check out his website and yeah. obviously the job is remote so you don't have to worry about moving to the boston area yeah and and, and more important more importantly if you don't have experience but you're really smart and like to learn we will train you so uh mm. please apply as well okay cool all right so with that said bob it's been a pleasure talking to you thanks for okay, great. coming on thanks so much all right if you like the episode please leave a review and a rating on itunes it helps more wonderful listeners like you find the show and as always this episode was brought to you by odogu.com that's o-d-o-g-w-u.com if you need someone to help you out with your facebook and instagram marketing and you want to turn advertising into profit for your company look no further than odogu.com signing out don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.